0: Have you ever heard the phrase, the church should never talk about politics? I'll amend that statement. The church should never talk about partisan politics. You see, for the church to not talk about politics, it would ignore and attempt to negate many of the words, actions, parables, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because a verse-by-verse analysis of the Gospels, when a historic analysis, would uncover the fact that the undertones of Jesus' interaction with the Jewish and Roman officials. And whether we like this fact or not, Jesus was crucified as a political and religious insurrectionist. The church should not be in the business of talking about partisan politics. Still, it should be in the business of nurturing and equipping its people to live out the way of Jesus in a world which can often bump against the world's political ideologies and systems. But the challenge facing American Christians today is the tremendous polarizing nature of partisan politics. The American political party system has drawn an apparent line in the sand, forcing people to pick a side. And our partisan world has entrenched family member against family member, friend against friend, faith sojourner against faith sojourner, church member against church member, churches against church. And for what? We have divided ourselves with so much hatred over politicians that we will never meet, that will never do us a personal favor, and will never directly impact our lives. I hate to break this to you, but that politician doesn't care about you. You are a pawn for election. However, what if this isn't what Jesus has in mind for his followers? What if instead of toting party lines and blindly giving loyalty to political figures, Jesus is more interested in us living out the way of peace and justice, mercy, kindness, civility, homogeneity, and love, no matter the cost. What if Jesus is less concerned over whether you vote Republican or Democrat, libertarian or independent, and more concerned with our fidelity to a way that doesn't contradict a love for God and a love for neighbor, no matter who that neighbor is? We're beginning a new conversation series this morning, Forging Through the Fog, How the Church Leads a Grace-Filled Way in an Era of Partisan Politics, and I will make you a promise. You will not hear from my lips the names of candidates or any insinuation of who you should and should not vote for or theologically guilting you into casting a vote one way or the other. You will hear me preach from the truths of the scripture, empowering Jesus' followers to navigate these very challenging times. I want to repeat that because it is so important that you hear me clearly. I am making you a promise. You will not hear from my lips the names of candidates. You will not hear any insinuation of who you should and should not vote for, nor a clever way of making you feel theologically guilty for casting a particular vote. Instead, you will hear me preach the truths found in the scriptures empowering Jesus' followers to navigate these challenging times we live. And for this, we begin our conversation by looking at God's ordained party. For this, we look at the book of 1 Samuel chapter 8 verse 4. Now, Samuel is a unique book uh, that gives a perspective into the Hebrew people's history. They're ending a period called the Judges. This is a period where spiritual and militant leaders steered the people through challenging chapters of their existence. And there is the rise in the final judge, Samuel, who serves as the main priest to the people. Samuel has led the people through some pretty remarkable moments, including through the corruption of a religious system and the consummate invasion of the Philistines. Samuel was a great leader, and he was a great spiritual advisor to the people. But then 1 Samuel 8, verse 4 happens. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us so that we could be like all the other nations. You know this had to feel like a big slap in the face to Samuel. He had served these people faithfully and led them through God's guidance, and now this is how they repay him, with insults about his age and his parental decisions. And we should know this from the world of politics, but there is always someone else to blame. There's always a scapegoat to dump all the mistakes and failures onto. There's always a group of people to vilify, to shift away from the focus, away from our personal and party imperfections. And it's human naivety that we scapegoat, searching for solutions instead of addressing the actual problems that are at stake. And for some reason, they thought it was a good idea to solve their problems with authoritarian rule. We'll see how that's worked out in history. Give us a king, the people demand. It's what's understandable. They they want a king. At this point in their history, the Hebrew people were 12 loosely affiliated tribes in the land of Canaan. They had become victims to outside invasion and terrorist attacks. And it's quite possible that the outlying towns leaders probably wanted more protection a unified kingdom that would produce an army at the ready it may have been a deeply rooted sense of insecurity a a nagging fear that these foreign invaders could come at any time to dissolve of their peace and yet they don't just want a king but they want to be like other nations Let's recall what other nations are doing at this point. Other nations were the ones that were terrorizing the Israelites with invasion. The other nations were worshiping false gods, which sometimes included human sacrifice and prostitution. Could they be asking for anything that was more against the commands that God had given them to be faithful to one God and to set them apart? God had guided them in new ways and they were wanting to get rid of it because they thought that this was the way that they could be secure and like everyone else. As one author put it, the problem with comparison is that you always feel either better than someone else or worthless compared to someone else. This is not God's plan. Instead, we are to seek God and to follow God's plan with our own life. So it's a stupid request, really, but it says this in verse 6. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt Until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel is taking this personal, as he should, and he has sacrificed his entire life to serve these people, to be their mediator between God, and to speak to God on their behalf. Samuel is this amazing high priest and judge and prophet of Israel. He's he's guided the people, and this is a leadership change in this moment. This anointed person of God is being looked past for something different and something new. And the people demand a king. But God calms the anxiety and soothes the feelings of Samuel by telling him that this is not you they are rejecting. They are, in fact, rejecting me. This is a rejection of God, despite the fact that God has done everything for them, that God set them apart as a chosen people, that God freed them out of Egypt of slavery, that God guided them through the wilderness for 40 years, despite the endless failures that they had. God provided provisions of manna and water and quail for their hunger. God gave them the promised land and strengthened them to fight back from their enemies. God raised up leaders to guide the people when they needed it most. God defended them against the attacks of the Philistines and other tribes. And despite all of this, it still wasn't good enough for Israel. And it's so easy for us to see this rejection of God for tangible insecurity. They rejected God for a human leader to unite them, to fight their battles, to rule over them. They rejected God for something they thought would be better than the one who spoke life into existence. And I wonder if we can consider for just a second, as difficult as it might be, how we reject God. More specifically, how we reject God and transfer our trust to a flawed system, and leaders. The American Christian has become too dependent on politicians and political parties to give us hope for the future. Our mood, whether we want to admit it or not, is determined on whether or not our candidate wins the election has control of the House and the Senate and the Executive Office or the Supreme Court. Our first response to solving the needs of our community is to not go to the church to solve those issues, to our fellow followers of Jesus, but we look to government to fix the problems of our world. And depending on our political persuasion, just how much that government should be involved in circumstances We've used partisan political issues as a mechanism for instituting what we believe to be, quote, biblical principles while ignoring the other biblical themes of the Bible that contradict the actions and way of Jesus. So I think if we're honest, and I can be honest with myself, we can relate to the people's request for a king. We might not want a king, but we want a system politicians, and political parties to lead the way and to hope for the future. In verse 10 through 18, Samuel lays out all the reasons why a king is bad news for Israel. If you think a king is a good idea, Samuel says to the people, let me go ahead and tell you what a king you desire will do to you. Eight times in these verses, Samuel repeats the phrase, he will take. A king will conscribe your sons into an army to die at his command. You will have to work for the supplies for the army with weapons and resources. Your wives and your daughters will be forced to work in his palace. Actually, the king can demand that anyone do his bidding. So you are returning to being a slave to a master. He will take your land and your resources by a single utterance of his mouth. A king will tax you and take the best of what you have, not just your money, but your crops, your servants, and your resources. When that day comes, Samuel says, you will cry out for relief from that king. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. You'll be happy to hear that when the people heard all of these warnings from Samuel, that they realized the folly of their mistakes, they chose not to appoint a king, and they continued to follow God's leadership. I'm just kidding. Verse 19 happens. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people had said, he repeated before the Lord, and the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. See, despite Samuel's persistence and the very persuasive warnings, the people still wanted a king. They declare, nope, we still want a king. We want to be like the other cool nations around us and a king who can lead us and fight our battles for us. And regrettably for Israel, they were wrong, big time. It's fascinating that the people wanted Samuel to go before God to essentially declare, God, we really don't want you to be our king, but could you ordain someone to rule over us in your place? See, the concept of a theocratic government, a God-ordained ruler, it's not something that originated in the Hebrew scriptures. In fact, as far back as the Egyptian empire, we see a standing belief that the pharaoh was a God-appointed ruler. The Egyptians believed that the pharaoh was a god. Is there any greater authoritarian stamp than to say, God has appointed and ordained you to rule? And it's quite fascinating, the endless list of rulers, not only in the Hebrew reign, that have, quote, been God-ordained People, yet ruled in such a way that could not be any more contrary to the way of God. Fast forward to the first Christian emperor in Rome, Constantine. Legend has it that Constantine on the vision, had a vision on the eve of battle that if he would paint the image of the cross on their shields and on their banners that they would have victory the next day in battle. So he marched into battle wielding the cross, ordained shield, slaughtering thousands, because nothing says the love of Jesus like murdering people with the symbol of the world's salvation. With royal stamp of approval, Christianity became the official religion of Roman Empire, and I guess the way of Jesus was backing them as they conquered foe after foe, and the foe was given a chance. The option was be baptized or die, I don't know about you, but that's a really simple decision. Where do we start sprinkling that water? See, with Constantinism pumping through the veins of the church, Christianity spread throughout all of the, un, of the known world. In 314 AD, when the theocratic government took meaning for the church, it's when Christianity became legal in the Roman Empire, and the rest is history. The list of God-ordained rulers threads its way throughout history from the roman empire to germania from the imperialism of europeans to uh, the puritan settlers in new england the reason that theocracies fail is because humans are imperfect we are flawed beings attempting to lead and live based on our biased convictions and interpretations and since we are imperfect We cannot expect perfect decisions. In fact, we cannot expect an entire government to make decisions that is perfect or in line with the way of Jesus. Insert failings of theocratic leaders throughout history and we find endless other reasons of why theocracies simply don't work. Just take, for example, the leadership of the Israelite kings of old. Saul was the first crowned king who blatantly ignored and disobeyed the commands of God. David, in all of his glory, got another man's wife pregnant and then had the man murdered. And then we get to Solomon, and we could go on about Solomon all day, and then that's when the really nasty ones started to take the throne. You see, the kings of Israel would fail Israel to lead the people into defeat, and then into captivity, and and then eventually into the disappearance of the northern tribes forever. How can imperfect people expect to lead in the place of a perfect God? You can't. So let me be crystal clear from the truth of Scripture. The establishment of a new government by a certain number of religious people does not make that nation's, it's faith. No matter the government or the faith group. A country of people, of faith, doesn't make faith of the country. You can't label something God's, nor can you label a political party God's favorite. Such an attempt is to misguide the attempt to control God and to act like we speak on God's behalf. Ask Israel how that worked out for them when they were worshiping God with one hand and then in their other hand, living corrupt political, and economic lives, taking advantage of the poor, the orphan, and the widow while making the rich richer. Well, what happened was that God warned the people generation after generation after generation, and when they did not listen, Babylon, Persia, the Greeks, and the Romans came. And the nation of Israel became another subservient country to the latest empire. And this bleeds over into the concept of a God-ordained political party. This party believes in this, therefore it's the only way to, quote, vote as Christians. It's quite remarkable how we take control of God and what God says and claim it for our own. Or act as if we speak on behalf of God. God has not ordained a political party just like God has not ordained one government or country over the other. God is not a puppet or a mascot for us to use to bathe our political schemes with religious language. And I don't care who says it, whether it be Billy Graham, God rest his soul, the Pope, Joel Osteen, Tammy Faye, Andy Hale, or whoever says it, no party, no country, no candidate has control of morality, spirituality, interpretation of scripture, and what, who Jesus would vote for, how God feels about a particular issue, and certainly not God's kingdom. God's kingdom is not a country. It's not a political party. It's certainly not what we want to make it out to be. Now, I'm a little energized right now. I think that happened because of everything that happened yesterday in college football. And to say that we love college football in the South is a bit of an understatement. From September to January, we dedicate every Saturday to our team. We give our team our time, our passions, our conversations, our waking thoughts, our eyes, our energy to whatever's on the field. And because we are so passionate about our team, We wear their jersey, we put stickers on our cars, we buy season tickets, we get that special TV package, and we give countless hours to our team. We will get into the most heated arguments with fans of our rival team because we have to tell them just how wrong they are in believing that their team holds ground against our team. And we're even willing to denigrate the very humanity and consciousness of another person based on who their fandom is. And we might not physically wear our team's jersey, but in our heart, in our mind, in our soul, we wear it proudly. And whether we realize it or not, for most people who are passionate about politics, there are two teams, Democrat or Republican. Republican conservative or liberal, right versus left. And many of us are born into one of these two teams, and our thought is given to us by our parents and our community that shape the way that we see the world, and that our one party is the only party that can represent our values. And some of us reject our family's chosen team, and we join the team with a zeal of a convert, and some of us stay put because we feel like if we go to the other side, we've become a traitor in some way. Either way, we put on our team's jersey and we adopt the policies and positions and political expectations that are put upon us. But what we fail to see is that our jersey blinds us from seeing the world beyond our team we will give blind allegiance to that team no matter the cost. And that jersey blinds us from seeing the humanity of other people on, quote, the other side. And why would you when the point of this entire game is to win, to be right, to dominate? And the jersey blinds us from seeing that at times our scoring and winning might not be the best thing for our neighbor and the jersey blinds us from seeing the truth that there is another side that there are other facts that there are other stories and what we fail to see more often than not is that our team loyalty blinds us from following the way of jesus especially when it contradicts the way of our political team And yet, if we truly desire to follow Jesus, then we can only give loyalty to one God. And if we constantly find our loyalty being split between our political team and Jesus, then I think we know where our loyalties lie. Jesus is inviting us to take off our jersey and to follow him. And it's vital that we understand that this is not an anti-country, specifically anti-American ploy. In fact, it's the opposite. Those that follow Jesus are citizens of the kingdom of God first and foremost. And where we find our rights and the way we live is bound by God's leadership. The great Stanley Howard Ross writes, We are therefore resident aliens, We are not living in the country or kingdom of our own, but we are visitors to the present place where we reside. This is why that we don't look to theocracies within a human kingdom or country. We already have a perfect leader in Christ. We therefore do not choose to live under the ways of a country in which we live that challenges us to live contradictory to what Jesus calls us to. Instead, we are called to be servants to the people we live among. We live by the way of the kingdom of God. As one theologian put it, Jesus' ministry and the parables told about the kingdom of God have not been taken serious enough. We have too easily aligned our lives to the way of America because its lifestyles are taken for granted as right and true. We've too often been distracted by the American dream pursuing life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness instead of God's reign on earth. However, one day we will find that it's not America but the kingdom of God that is beautiful. As hard as this truth might be, if we follow Jesus, then we must realize that America is not God, nor any other country. The American dream is not the gospel, and it does not replace the gospel in our lives. Our politicians are not the Messiah. Our party is not the church. Our political persuasion is not the truth. Our hope is not in winning elections. Our mission is not defeating the other side. But here is the truth that will give us freedom and true life and a new vision. God is God. Jesus' gospel is revolutionary and contradictory often to the ways of this world if we will center our lives around it. Jesus is the Messiah. God's party is the church. Our hope is in the present and coming kingdom of God, as well as our role in it. And our mission is the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because God has anointed us to preach good news to the poor, to recover sight for the blind, to release the captive, and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." And what an extraordinary opportunity we have to not be pawns for elections or mindless partisan support that will cause the rise and fade eventually with time. Instead, we are invited to give our allegiance to God's kingdom that is everlasting to everlasting, that will never fade with an election, that will call us to live in a way that exceeds beyond the worth of a partisan world that only seeks to divide and to control and to dominate and to win. And if you don't know what all this means, if you're so agitated by every word that I'm saying this morning, I'm inviting you not to trust in me, but to trust into Jesus, who's inviting us to follow him, into identifying and finding truth and the answers behind all this. It's time to take off our jerseys and to truly follow Jesus.